All right, let's turn to uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. The question continues to be at the center of everything that Solomon has been dealing with, which is, is life really worth living under the sun? And any time that we hear him say under the sun or that we see it written under the sun, he means specifically what happens on the earth without God. In other words, people living under the sun without God in their lives. That everything that happens without God is vanity of vanities and it's a vexation of spirit. In other words, it, it will end up being a troubling of the spirit. At the onset of this particular chapter, of course, Solomon deals with oppressions. He deals with the corruption of men. He deals with the covetousness of men's hearts. He dealt with the complacency of their lives. And he dealt with the issue of being alone, of comfortlessness, and of living a life without anyone else in, in their lives to the extent that what would they do with everything that they've done on this earth when it's their time to die? Who do they leave whatever they have to? And so, in the middle section of Ecclesiastes, he makes it real clear. He mentions things that are better. And he uses that word a lot. Better. Better, he said in verse 6, is a handful with quietness, and both the hands full with travail and vexation. In verse 9, he says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. And so, from the standpoint, spiritually, God is saying to everyone, being alone, he never intended it for man. We saw that in the garden in Genesis chapter 2. Man should not be alone. But then he begins the last section of Ecclesiastes 4 with the same word, better. He says, better is a poor and a wise child and an old and foolish king who will no more be admonished. For out of prison he cometh to reign, whereas also he that is born in his kingdom becometh poor. I considered all the living which walk under the sun with the second child that shall stand up in his stead. There is no end of all the people, even of all that have been before them. They also that come after shall not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and vexation of spirit. Solomon is now going to deal with the issue 
of not only folly, but of being fickle. Fickle. The 1960 presidential race between John F. Kennedy and Richard M. Nixon would, would change campaigning for the highest office in the land for good by virtue of the first televised debate between these two men. Kennedy, young, handsome, charismatic, versus Nixon, older, not so handsome, with nervous, almost sneaky eye movements, and a forehead that couldn't stop perspiring due to the hot studio lights. And though it was a close race up to this point, Nixon was actually ahead in the polls. After this debate, the tide began to turn, and Kennedy would eventually become president. Politics in general, and elections in particular, have been affected for good by visual media. It would be easy to say that nowadays it isn't the issues that matter like character, morality, and honesty. It's what looks good, appearing smooth or slick, that counts. Because people, for the most part, are fickle. Sadly, in these days and times, even when the events of the day have drawn major dividing lines with issues and drastic positions, the deceptions and the lies being voiced by the media cause many people to reveal their fickleness. Now, what does it mean to be fickle? One simple definition from Webster's Dictionary says, erratically changeable, capricious, which actually means this. It means changeable, erratic, inconsistent, unpredictable, unstable, unsteady, variable, and the list could go on and on. But maybe this illustration would help to understand fickleness. Then if you want extra points at the end, you'll have to answer another question. Who's the one that's fickle in this whole illustration? So here it is. There's an old story told about an elderly man who was traveling with a boy and a donkey. As they walked through a village, the man was leading the donkey and the boy was walking behind. The townspeople said the old man was a fool for not riding, so to please them, he climbed up on the animal's back. Now when they came to the next village, the people said the old man was cruel to let the child walk while he enjoyed the ride. So to please them, he got off and he set the boy on the animal's back and continued on his way. In the third village, people accused the child of being lazy for making the old man walk. And the suggestion was made that they both ride. So in the fourth village, the townspeople were indignant at the cruelty to the donkey because he was made to carry two people. The frustrated man was last seen carrying the donkey down the road. 
So who's fickle here? Was it the man who kept changing because everybody kept telling him, you know, one thing or another? Can we see that in this illustration how the social media and opinion of today have fueled the fires of fickleness? Solomon had observed the oppression and injustices of man upon men due to greed and covetousness for the sake of being successful and being on top. He saw the loneliness of those who had clawed their way there and the futility of having it all without someone else to share it all with. He gave us better proverbs, as I mentioned earlier, like in verse 3, Yea, better is he than both they which have not yet been, who have not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. Or verse 6, as I mentioned also before, Better is a handful with quietness than both the hands full with tra travail and, and vexation of spirit. Or as I also mentioned, verse 9, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. But as he now deals with the instability of political power and the fickleness of popularity, Solomon introduces us to one more better proverb in our text that he might prove these three things. This is what he's going to prove in this chapter. The folly of power. The fickleness of the people. And the frustration of position. The first thing that we're going to deal with is the folly of power in verses 13 and 14. Better is a poor and a wise child than an old and foolish king who will no more be admonished. For out of prison he cometh to reign, whereas also he that is born in his kingdom becometh poor. Now, this proverb actually introduces a parable of a young, disadvantaged man, the child, as it were. But it's a parable of a young, disadvantaged man who would overcome his youthful problems through wisdom to become king over a person of age, wealth, and position who, as king, would no longer take advice from his counselors. That's pretty much what we, what we see there in verse 13, Solomon proved the folly of power without wisdom and the power of wisdom over age and wealth. Let me say that again. Solomon proved the folly of power without wisdom and the power of wisdom over age and wealth. Because these things are no guarantee of true and lasting success. You see, the folly of power without wisdom, that, that's what the older king did. He, he didn't want anybody to tell him what to do. But then there's the power of wisdom. When somebody has struggled in his life but has learned the lesson of wisdom and he applies it in the proper way, then all of a sudden, you know, he becomes king over the one who was foolish. 
Proverbs chapter 4, verses 5 through 7. Solomon, who was the son of David, who learned these things from his own father, would write very clearly and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in verse 5 of Proverbs 4, get wisdom. What are people out to get today? Because that's, that's the big thing today. What are we going to get? What do we get from this world? What do we get from our jobs? What do we get from our careers? What do we get from our education? What do we get? But the inspiration of the Holy Spirit says, get wisdom. Get understanding. Forget it not. Neither decline from the words of my mouth. That's a father to a son. Neither decline from the words of my mouth. Forsake her not, and she shall preserve thee. Love her, and she shall keep thee. And then he says, wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. And with all thy getting, get understanding. So Solomon is saying that that young man, or young child as it were, who had been in prison, was now had learned something about wisdom and all of that, and now applies it to his life to better himself, and actually becomes a king. Then there's Proverbs 16, verse 16 where he says, how much better is it to get wisdom than gold? See, a lot of people want gold today. A lot of people are looking for success today. They're looking for a better life, a better way. Yes, I understand how hard it is for some people today who have lost their jobs, and, and, and really all they really want is to feed their families. They just want to make ends meet. But how many people today, and, and if you think about it, I mean, we, we've never really put a number to it. I'm sure some people have, uh, economists and, you know, finance, financial uh, uh, counselors and whatnot, put numbers to the fact that, you know, there are so many people or, many, or a percentage of so many people that, that are really just seeking after that big catch or that big find, you know. You know, the ones who, who play the, the lottery, you know, and every time they look, you drive on the freeway and they see the numbers, oh, it's getting better now. And they start thinking about all the things that they are going to do. Of course, they try to be humble and say, of course, I'm going to give some to the church and I'm going to give some to my family and I'm going to build houses for this and that and feed the poor and, and do all this and become Mother Teresa all at the same time, which never really does happen, if it does at all. How much better is it to get gold and uh, wisdom than gold and to get understanding rather than to be chosen than silver? To get understanding rather to be chosen than silver. The youth in his poverty. The youth in his poverty became rich through his wisdom. The rich king became poor through his stubbornness. We are not told why the young man had been in prison. But there is a faint reminder of someone named Joseph. There is a faint reminder of a person named Joseph, the son of Yaakov, the son of Jacob, 
who had been put in prison falsely. Of course, he was, first of all, sold by his brothers, nearly killed by his brothers, sold into slavery, taken to Egypt. Eventually, he would be put into prison, falsely accused by the wife of Potiphar, the second-in-command to Pharaoh. And yet, Joseph served the Lord through his time there until he would come out of prison and then he himself would become the number two man in all of Egypt. I want you to remember this testimony. Are you ready? Remember this testimony. You have it in Genesis 39, verses 20 through 23. Genesis 39, 20 through 23. Remember this testimony. And Joseph's master took him and put him into prison. That's Potiphar. A place where the king's prisoners were bound. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph. Folks, remember that. Remember that as as Joseph's testimony. And remember that when you want to have a testimony for God. That whatever you do in this life, you need to always do it knowing that the Lord is going to be with you. The Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy. And gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners that were in the prison. What are we revealing here? We are revealing the wisdom that Joseph had because of who was with him. Who was with him? The Lord. And whatsoever they did there, he was the doer of it. Joseph didn't just say, oh, you know, I'll, you know I'll, I'll do this and not do it. He did what he was supposed to do. The keeper of the prison looked not to anything that was under his hand because the Lord was with him. He was a reflection of the fact that God was ever with Joseph. Everything that Joseph did reflected the presence of God Almighty with him. Because the Lord was with him and that which he did, the Lord made it to prosper. The Lord made it to prosper. And for the right reasons he made it to prosper. The young man had been in prison, but he got out and he took the throne. Back, going back to the young man in Ecclesiastes. But what is implied in verse 14 is the old king, in contrast to the young man, the old king himself was imprisoned in his stubborn stupidity. For out of prison he cometh to reign, that's the child, whereas also he that is born in his kingdom, that's the old man, becometh poor. He was imprisoned because of his stubborn stupidity. He lost his throne and he became poor. The moral of this parable is that wealth and position are no guarantee of success while poverty and apparent failure are no obstacles to achievement. 
That's, that is something I wish people would learn in this country at this time during this crisis that we see happening. Where everybody is out to, you know, and of course, you know, I've already talked about the fact that there's a, an underlying deep state working through all of this uh, uh, rage and all of these uh, uh, riots and lootings and everything that's going on. And, and unfortunately and sadly, all the killing that is taking place. And it, it burns in, in, in us the reasons for these things that are happening. But the fact of the matter is, there's wisdom in what this passage is teaching us. That there's no guarantee of success in wealth and position. But there are no obstacles to achieving after any kind of failure. But the key is, who is with you? Who is with you? The Lord was with Joseph. And again, an implication is that the Lord was with this young child of wisdom. Now let me interject here as well something else. Let me interject that Solomon may have, con have considered himself as the failed king. This is late in Solomon's life. So Solomon may have considered himself as that failed king due to his own stubbornness when he compromised his faith and testimony for the Lord God by building worship centers for his 700 concubines and 300, 300 wives. And even he himself was joining with them in their worship of idols. What you need to do is go to 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 11. And while you're turning there, you know, you can begin it even at the beginning. It tells us in verse 1, but King Solomon loved many strange women. And then it uh, goes on down a little bit and it says, uh, you, know, that the, you know, the Lord actually told him, you shall not go in with them or go into them, neither shall you come in unto you. For surely after their gods, you know, Solomon uh, clave unto these uh, in, in love and, and, and so on and so forth. And, and then you get down to verse 4, for it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away. His heart, turned his heart away after other gods. When Solomon was old. Okay, so all of that is prelude to what we're going to see in verse 6. Because how many of us can really take this statement that is being said? And Solomon did evil. In the sight of the Lord. And went not fully after the Lord as did David his father. Now that's a very interesting thing that we see there. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and went not fully after the Lord. In other words, he was compromising. He had become complacent. He had become covetous. And in all of that, he became corrupt. The first four points of this chapter in Ecclesiastes 4. And notice what happens in verse 9. The Lord was angry with Solomon. I don't know about you, but it pains me to read that. It pains me to read it. 
You know, we have our, our heroes in, in the scriptures, you know. Moses. Moses, Moses. Remember the Ten Commandments? We have our heroes. I was going to say Charlton Heston, but that's not. He's, that's, he just played Moses. David. Joshua. Even Gideon. One thing we know about all of them is they were human. They were men. David was a man. And he committed great sin. And he paid a price. There was consequence. A tremendous consequence placed upon David. But one thing that David never did. See, this is why it says what it says here. That Solomon went not fully after the Lord as David his father. Why? Because you see, David never, ever bowed his knee to an idol. Never. He made mistakes. Made one big, great mistake, which led to a lot of others. But he never bowed his knee to an idol. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned from the Lord God of Israel, which had appeared unto him twice. And had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he kept not that which the Lord commanded. Wherefore the Lord said unto Solomon, For as much as this is done of thee, and thou hast not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded thee, I will surely rend the kingdom from thee, and will give it to thy servants. Then, of course, there was his son Rehoboam. But even worse than that was a man named Jeroboam. And you can read all about that later. Solomon now sees himself and the folly of his power because he turned from the Lord. Brings us to the the fickleness of people. The fickleness of people. I considered all the living which walk under the sun with a second child that shall stand up in his stead. I'll explain that in a moment. And really, the fickleness is in verse 15, and then there's the frustration in verse 16. But let me read verse 16 also, so you can get the full picture. I consider all the living which walk under the sun with a second child that shall stand up in his stead. There is no end of all the people, even of all that have been before them. They also that come after shall not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity, worthlessness, and vexation of spirit, the deep troubling of spirit. Solomon now focuses on the people and their fondness for change. Their fondness for change. I'm trying to clearly give an example of a little bit of fickleness in our local news, well, not our local news, but the, the news of the day, the, the current news. 
that's going on. You know, there's big, this whole big deal about uh, President Trump going to a church and holding up his Bible. And, of course, the mainstream media have attacked him. In some cases, they even posted a picture of Hitler holding a Bible or a book. We don't know if it was a Bible, but it was holding a book up. And then, of course, then the other side comes back and they say, well, you know, if that's going to happen, then well, let's, uh, let's show a picture of Bill Clinton coming out of a church holding a Bible up, you know. So now it's become this, this war, you know, so people go back and forth, back and forth, you know. Uh, and then, you know, Joe Biden is in a, in a black church with black pastors behind him and he's kneeling with his mask on and they all have their masks on. And then, of course, they're... they're they're telling everybody, you know, President Trump only did this to, to have a, a, a photo op. Well, what do you think Joe Biden just did, but nobody told, you know. So there's, see the fickleness here? It just, it just makes you just want to throw up, if I can say that. So, we're in, in dire straits here in this country. Because we've changed so much. We get tired of the status quo, we get tired of one thing or another, so we, you know, we, 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 we start dividing lines again. What has happened? I was, I was reading an older uh, message that I had done 10 years ago, or 11 years ago, uh, not 10 years ago, or maybe it was nine years ago. Anyway, it was the 10th anniversary of, of 9-11. And I was reading the message, you know, just kind of comparing some things. And I started thinking, how, th- how, how we've changed since then. Did it really change our nation? For a few days, maybe even a couple of weeks, we were, man, we were gung-ho. God bless America. God bless America. And people were filling churches for at least a couple of weeks. Things started settling down a little bit. We were going over to the other side of the world to find out who this was. You know, it was that whole, you know. Fast forward now, 20 years later. We're going through very similar types of struggles and things happening. But everything's changed. Because man is fickle. So Solomon is focusing on this. No longer are they pleased with the poor youth who became king. Now they come alongside of a second youth who replaces the first. That's the mention of the second one there in, in verse 15. I considered all the living which walk under the sun. Now with a second child that shall stand up in his stead. We liked the first one for a little while, but now we're going to go for the second one. Maybe this one's better. How popularity changes with the blowing of the wind. Winston Churchill knew that 
public favor was no proof of real success. Once after he gave a speech for which 10,000 people came out, a friend of his asked him, Winston, aren't you impressed that 10,000 people came to hear you speak? And Churchill replied, not really. 100,000 would come to see me hang. So you see, there's no guarantee in this life of success. Solomon's father, King David, suffered through this plight. As Absalom and Adonijah, his sons, would would steal the people's hearts from him. That was a painful time. That was part of the consequences that David was going through. Painful time. And Solomon saw how fickle the generations would become. That's verse 16. Consider this statement concerning a, a younger generation which had great spiritual potential. The generation that would actually grow up in the promised land. We're told in Judges chapter 2 verse 10. Now remember there was a generation that died in the, in the, in the wilderness and then a generation that entered into the promised land led by Joshua and Caleb. But then after that generation began to pass, this is what we find in verse 10, And also all that generation were gathered unto their fathers, that being the one that came over into the promised land, and there arose another generation after them which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. So it wasn't even a whole, it wasn't even generations or a few generations. It was one generation that didn't know the Lord. Nor did they know about the works that the, that the Lord had done for Israel. Now we could, we could debate whether, you know, those in the land that were of that generation maybe weren't strong enough or you know, encouraging enough to keep their children in the word of God, but it could also be the other way. With every generation, there comes one that grows with a little bit of, you know, testing. Every family goes through it. Every family goes through it with their children trials. We'd like our children to be perfect. But we'll take near perfect, won't we? We still love them. We want them to know the Lord. So we teach them about the Lord. Then we can't be with them every minute of the day and then what happens? That's why we have to stay vigilant for our families, vigilant for our children, to grow up and continue to grow up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord and His Word.
a whole generation. That time of the judges, man, it was like this. It was down, up, and down, up, and down. And God, you know, continued to save them, but the, it was a vicious circle. When you read the book of Judges, he had to raise up a judge to bring, you know, some sense of judgment upon his people so that they would re repent and return. But then it would go down and up and down again. So understand that as the Lord is abandoned, as the Lord is abandoned, fickleness goes on from generation to generation, from idol to idol, from leader to leader. So that, that leads from the, you know, the fickleness of the people to the frustration of position. The frustration of position, as we see in verse 16, there is no end of all the people, even of all that have been before them. They also that come after that uh, shall not rejoice in him. They're fickle. So the frustration comes to those that are in leadership. Surely this also is vanity and vexation of spirit. And we see then this vicious cycle even here. Under the sun, even the advantages of wisdom itself are only relative. It didn't keep the next generation from desiring something new and fresh. It has been said that the love of change is a dominant principle of selfishness. The smile of today may be changed for the frown of tomorrow. But how does all of this apply to the one who has been changed by the power of God to those who have become new creatures in Christ? Well, people in the world change to please men. But we've been changed that we might please God. We've been changed to please God. We studied this not long ago in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verses 3 through 6, where Paul says, For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile or deception, but as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, which trieth or testeth our hearts. For neither at any time used we flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness. Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. He would not do that. He would not wear a cloak of covetousness. Look out on the inside, but the inside all he wants is to take their money or benefit from them. Which a lot of charlatan prosperity preachers are doing to a lot of people today and have done for a number of years. Or what he tells them in 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 1 and 2. When he says, Furthermore then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how you ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more, for you know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. And you can, re, I mean, you, re, you can re, re, return to the word and just realize every commandment that Jesus gave to his disciples were the commandments that the disciples or the apostles gave to the people and gave to the church. That you shall love one another as I have loved you. You're to forgive one another as I have forgiven you. You're to humble yourself one to another. 
You ought to build one another up and exhort one another as the day of the, of the Lord approaches. When you see need, then you give me. You give where the need is. As God has provided to you, so must you provide to others. That's not communism, by the way, or socialism. That's biblical giving. God always blesses those who bless others. And it's a joy to see when people give from their heart to other people. Without, without the left hand knowing what the right hand is doing, that's the, that's the best way to do it. That's biblical. We don't have to go on TV and tell everybody, yeah, we're giving food out for this and that. If you're doing it to inform people that you're doing it so that they can know where to come to do it, that, that's one matter. But if you're only doing it so you can say, look at what we do, there's a problem. So the heart still is a matter here. And then Paul says to them, you need to abound even more in it. You're already good, loving people. But abound more in that. For you know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. So understand then that the difference for us is between half-heartedness and whole-heartedness. The difference is between half-heartedness and whole-heartedness. William Barclay wrote this. He said, it's possible to be a follower of Jesus without being a disciple. To be a camp follower without being a soldier of the king. To be a hanger-on in some great work without pulling one's weight. Once someone was talking to a great scholar about a younger man. He said, so-and-so tells me that he was one of your students. The teacher answered devastatingly, he may have attended my lectures, but he was not one of my students. You see the difference? <laughs> you see the difference? Okay. Even just a little bit of head shake, you know. Yeah, even if you did this, that'd be okay. You know. I'll say it again. You can attend lecture after lecture. You can attend sermon after sermon, message after message, and not be a student, not be a follower, not be a disciple. There's a world of difference between attending lectures and being a student. It is one of the supreme handicaps of the church that in the church there are so many distant followers of Jesus and so few real disciples. Have you ever considered for even a moment the heart of Solomon's father David when finding himself in the barren and dry wilderness of Judah and how that heart cried out to his God. Have you ever just considered David's heart? Because I want you to consider these words as, as we find ourselves 
today, as we find ourselves today in the dry and painful wilderness of this world's lies, of its deceptions, and of its fickleness, I want you to turn to Psalm 63. Psalm 63. I was going to do a couple of verses, and then I read the next one, and I said, okay, we've got to add that one. And then I said, okay, the next one. And then I said, you know what? We've got to add them all. It's only 11 verses. But I want you to see the richness of a heart in the wilderness experience that David was having. That this is how he cried out to God. Oh God, he says. Oh God. Thou art my God. Early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee. My flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. To see thy power and thy glory. So as I have seen thee in the sanctuary. Because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. Thus will I bless thee while I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name. Stop and just think for a moment what David is saying. I will lift up my hands in the, to thy name or in thy name. In the wilderness where there's no water, where he has to trust the Lord for everything. I would venture to say that there are some professing Christians today who would read this and realize that they have spent more time looking for the water than looking for the living water. looking for a way out than trusting in the one who was with him through the dryness and through the barrenness of that desert. My lips shall praise thee, thus will I bless thee while I live. I, lift up, I will lift up my hands in thy name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness. And my mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips. Would you think that at some point in time, if David is saying this, he's saying it through parched lips, through lips that are probably cracked and in pain, yet he says it anyway and does it? When I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches, because thou hast been my help. Therefore, in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice. In the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice. I 
I don't want to look for a shadow of any man or of any institution. I only want to find myself under the shadow of his wings. Because I know that I will be safe there. No matter what happens to me, I'll be safe there. Verse 8 is one of my favorite verses in Scripture. My soul followeth hard after thee. I want you to contrast that phrase with what we read earlier about Solomon, who did not follow hard after God, like David, his father, did. You remember that part in 1 Kings 11? That he didn't follow fully the Lord. How many professing believers fit that bill today? We have to examine our hearts, each one of us here. Because I want my soul to follow hard after God. The proof of what he was doing is found in his next statement. Thy thy right hand upholdeth me. Again, over many months, weeks, and years of teaching about the right hand of God, who is he speaking of? Who sits at the right hand of the Father right now? Who is the right hand of God? Thy right hand upholdeth me. But those that seek my soul to destroy it shall go into the lower parts of the earth. They shall fall by the sword. They shall be a portion for foxes. But the king shall rejoice in God. Everyone that sweareth by him shall glory. But the mouth of them that speak lies shall be stopped. Folks, just remember this, that every lie that is thrown our way today in media, in social media, and I have to I hate to say it, but even in some churches today, that every lie that is spoken Every mouth will one day be stopped. It will be stopped. Let's close with the words of Jesus. John chapter 10, verses 27 to 30. To wrap this up tonight. Jesus said, My sheep, 
hear my voice. And I know them. And they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life. And they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. If Jesus is saying anything to us tonight in this particular passage, he's saying, my sheep are not fickle. My sheep are not fickle. My sheep don't constantly change. Like Paul mentioned once in Ephesians chapter 4 when he talks about those who are swept to side to side with every wind of doctrine. And that's sad when we see that happening in the church today because it makes you ask the question, well, who are they really following? Because here's the thing, no matter what storm we're going through, no matter what flood may be coming down the pike, no matter what kind of circumstance is happening that is, that is blowing in, in and out and around us and through us and causing us up and down to go uh, this way and that way, we don't have to move. The storms do not change us. The storms of life, the floods, the floodwaters don't carry us out and away. Why? Because we are in the hands of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we have had storms, and we'll have more storms until Jesus comes. But we don't have to change. Because we don't please man. We please God. We please Jesus. And there's no one else to please. Well, we can please one another by loving one another and enjoying one another and, and enjoying the fellowship and, and everything else that comes with it. But the bottom line is we please only one. And that's Jesus. Amen.